I am joined by John Maxfield, banking expert and author at the Maxfield on Banks Substack. John, welcome to Forward Guidance. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jack. Appreciate it. Glad glad to hear it. John, we're recording the afternoon of the April 3rd. So it's been a few weeks since the fall of Silicon Valley Bank. So we can sort of get out of the sort of uh, you know, fog of war. Everything is happening at, uh, at once and maybe have some longer term reflections. I, I first want to start out, you know, I want to get you what, what do you think is going to happen next, but how would you, how have you made sense over the past month? You know, I know you focus a lot on history. Would you say this is more like, you know, 2008, more like 1990s or something that's more vanilla and not that big of a deal? It's a big deal, right? But like for the people who were involved, right? Anybody impacted, it would be a, obviously a, a really big deal, but like stepping like up, you know, a million miles, and from the perspective of like the banking industry and what this all means um, and all of that, I would say that, you know, we've had nine major banking panics in the history of the United States. So 1819, uh, 37, 57, civil wars, a big panic, 73, 1893, um, the Great Depression, the 80s, and then the financial crisis. Okay, so those, those are the big ones. And so what happens there is those are followed by long periods of time where the economy is depressed. There have been probably 20 smaller panics since the beginning of the country. And the ones that are best known are the panic of 1907, when JP Morgan locked a whole bunch of people in his library until like all these bankers decided to help the other banks in town. And then that took care of that. So like there's, there's there issues for a few days, then that dissipated the, the issues. And then there was a one in 1884, and that one was predicated by the failure of a, of a, of a company called Grant & Ward. Grant & Ward was like a brokerage company, like a Wall Street kind of like investment bank brokerage company, but it was named after President Grant. Like he was literally a partner in this, hmm. in, the, in, this, in, this, in, this in this firm. And so, um, but again, then the government came in with a whole bunch of stimulus, um, took care of it, and then that kind of like dissipated the panic. And so, you know, if, if you... If, where this will fall in the history of kind of panics and stuff like that is on the, that side, like the 1884 one or the 1907 one, where it's like, you know, they, the government was able to come in and take care of it before it caused, it seems, it seems to be the case at least, before it caused any significant uh, economic damage. So what's your outlook going forward? I mean, do you think that more banks will fail, that they won't fail? I mean, you've got a great chart from Maxfield on Banks showing just how the number of failure failed banks and how it really peaked in the 1800s and even in 2008 2009 2010 we didn't get to you know where we were into the uh, 19th century even one or two more failed banks would still be a, a huge deal so what's your sort of outlook going forward and, and why so the the thing to know about banking is that failure is the rule not the exception okay so you know I, I've kind of collected as much data as on this as I can. I've kind of built out a data set going all the way back to the beginning of the country. And um, what you what I found is that there's roughly like 18,000 banks that have failed. Now, and that's super conservative because there's like voids in the data, like in between the revolution and the civil war, like there are certain states that didn't collect very good data and all that kind of stuff. So we know it's, it's really conservative. Let's just call it 18,000. And then let's maybe, I don't know, another maybe 7,000 because then there's 22,000 mergers. And let's mm. call it say 7,000 of those are potentially mergers in lieu of failure. So let's call it 25,000 failures in the, in, in the past, right? There's about, there's less than 5,000 banks today. Mm-hmm. So that means that a bank is five times more likely to fail 
than it is to succeed. <laughs> okay, so that that's an important thing to, to keep in mind. Um, so yes, you should always anticipate that there will be more bank failures. And the question is why? Why are there bank failures? Why are banks so prone to failure? Um, well, well, first, they, they I guess I should lay this out. Like they are more prone to failure. Um, uh, they're about I think it's like thirty to forty percent more prone to failure than your typical business. If you if you take an average through a full cycle, um, and the reason they are well, there's two kind of broad reasons. One is that they are very very vulnerable to errors that they commit to unforced errors. Really really vulnerable, and they're vulnerable because one, they use a lot of leverage. So 10x leverage, um, like when Washington Mutual failed, only 3.4 percent of its, or I think it's 3.4, 3.6% of its loans were on uh, non-performing. So it's got like a 96 and something on its test and it's, it still failed, right? So you have the leverage, then you have the fractional reserve banking. And so that means that, you know, you're borrowing deposits, right? Your deposits, you're, you're, you're borrowing those, but those can be taken at any point in time, right? And so if you, cause you, and you're, you're, you're like, you're, you never have all the cash on hand that you need to satisfy all your depositors. So if there's a run, I mean, it just uh, there's a liquidity crisis. It just happens really quickly. So that's the second reason. The third reason is that when a bank, so when you look at a bank's balance sheet, like, you know, whatever, 60, 70% of it is made up of loans, right? Well, a loan is, you, you, you know, make the loan this period, this time, and then it goes, 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 and then there's a hopefully a payoff. Well, during this whole period of time, you have very little sense. Well, I mean, you, I mean, you can, you have sense, but like, you don't know if the loan is good until it's paid off. And so, yeah, there's this opacity in your cost of goods sold. And so you can like make a whole bunch of loans and you see this all the time, make a whole bunch of loans. They're all going just fine. And people are like, oh, our loans are great. But then they're not. They're not. And so it's like a red herring almost. It, it causes that. So there, you have that vulnerability to, to, to the mistakes, um, to the consequences of mistakes. And then the other major point or part of this is that you're also very prone to make the mistakes in the first place. And that's because you can grow a bank as fast as you want because there is literally an infinite demand for credit. And if there's something that we know about humans, it's that they want you know, the rewards in the short term, not in the long term. Right, your point about credit, bank loans right now on a credit basis look quite good because it's always backward looking. So even though we've had these outflows, it's the, the loans themselves, people are, people are still paying them down. But as you mentioned, that can always change. And how would you characterize the fall of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank? You mentioned three, four reasons why banks can fail. What reason was were, were those? I think it's easy to look at Silicon Valley Bank and be like, that is an anomaly, right? Because like, like off the, top, off the top of your head, Jack, do you know of any other banks that have failed like that? Um, no, I mean, Signature Bank. <laughs> Kind of, kind of, kind of signature bank. Yeah, I mean, right. Yeah, uh, the the like, Bank of the United States in the 1930s, maybe. So now you see, now that's the New York in you. See, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Um, so that the bet just for everybody knows. So the Bank of the United States, its failure is the thing that caused the Great Depression, that transfer, transformed a large recession into the Great Depression, because that's the thing that triggered all the bank, or a lot of the bank, or the major, major, major bank runs when it failed in December of 1930. But um, right, and it was not a central bank, not the first bank or the second bank in the United States. It, it was that was just a misnomer. Because it, maybe it says give people confidence that it was safe because it's the Bank of the U.S. But but okay, John, go, let's go back to twenty twenty three. Had to remember the year yeah, there. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you were you were saying, Jack? Had you known of any other banks that had failed like that? And 
it was tough for me to come up with one. Yeah. And so, okay, keep this in mind. Remember, there's 18,000 failures that we know of, confirmed failures on the records. And there's like a dozen reasons that banks fail. So what does that mean? It means that like for every bank that fails today, there's probably hundreds, maybe thousands of banks that have failed for the same damn reason in the past. Okay. And so, so you think about the buckets, you put you have all these different buckets and like the biggest bucket that causes bank failures is commercial real estate. Commercial real estate, I'm just like, it gets, I mean, I, I don't know if it's 70% or 75%, but we're talking like a healthy majority of bank failures are caused by commercial real estate. In fact, the first failures in the country were caused in 1809 were caused by commercial real estate. That's not what this was, right? Um, what this was, was you had a company that goes out and it gets a ton of money, okay? Gets a ton of money that's floods in. And they say, what are we going to do with this money, right? What are we going to do with this money? Because they, they have to do, presumably they have to do something with it because they are 60 billion in ass in deposits going into the going into uh, 2020 then they got they grew 130 billion just inflow of deposits so they tripled in size as a result of that so if you just leave that money and do nothing with it you leave it in cash well you still have to uh, service that money you still have to service those customers so you're still absorbing the cost of servicing them but you're foregoing the revenue right so what does that do that causes your return on assets to drop precipitously, right? And like, look, if you're a bank and you're a private bank and uh, you know, say it's, it's the John and Jack bank, we own 100% of the bank, that doesn't matter. Like we can like, we'll just let it drop. It just doesn't, you know, we'll still make money, just not as much. And like, we just got to get through this. But if you're a publicly traded bank and you're, you do not own a controlling interest in that bank, you're kind of at the whims of like other people telling you what they, what they think you should or shouldn't do. You know what I mean? And so, you know, that that's kind of an element of play. So what did it do? It went out and it bought. So in deposits, a lot of people think that like deposits are an example of borrowing short and lending long. They, yes. they think borrowing short because it, you know, you have you but the depositor can go get that money whenever they want it. They have the option to get it every time, but in many cases they don't. In many cases, they keep that there for 10 years or 50 years. That's right. I mean, so a deposit is at, like a non-interest bearing deposit is actually one of the longest term, the longest duration liabilities on the bank balance sheet. In fact, I may be the longest duration liability on the bank balance sheet. And so what do, what do banks do? They match the duration of their liabilities with the duration of their assets. And so when Silicon Valley was sitting there thinking like, well, what are we going to do? We're going to, let's match the duration. So they go and they buy long-term, a whole bunch of $70 billion, stuff like that, long-term mortgage-backed securities. Okay. And so what, and then it got caught because the interest rates go up and the value of those things go down. And then you have people valuing those and saying that bank is insol uh, insolvent. So let's run on it. Let's go get our money before everybody else does. So what you have there, you have a, you have a mismatch type of, so like you have a, a failure as a result of duration, right? Because they're way too long. Interest rates go up. So you look in history and lo and behold, there's a bunch of banks that have failed for this very same reason. Uh, the, tw the 23rd largest bank in the country in 1980 was, it was the biggest bank in, in Philadelphia. It was called First Pennsylvania Bank. And it did the same thing. In the late 70s, it was run by this guy named John Bunting. He was a real character. Like, they were like, the interest rates are going up because we're in an energy crisis. And so John Bunting is like, let's, they, they can't go up much further. Like, let's buy a bunch of long bonds yeah. and bet that they're going to go down. So he loaded up their balance sheet with these long bonds. They didn't go down because then Paul Volcker came in and jacked them up, up to nearly 20%. And that thing, that thing, that's it. First Pennsylvania kind of into the arms of the FDIC. And then 
again, early, early in the 70s, same exact thing with the bank right outside of Detroit that did the same thing, but with, with municipal bonds. Um, so again, you, you see these things over and over and over again in, in time. And First Republic owns some municipal bonds. So a, lo- a bank run is present at many instances of a bank failure. That's on the liability side. When you said the 12, 13 reasons that banks fails, and you're talking about commercial real estate versus the securities, that's on the asset side. Important to draw a distinction there. And yeah, as you say, Silicon Valley Bank had a huge influx of deposits in 2020, 2021, 2022, as the IPO, in, uh, initial public offering uh, machine, was getting worrying. And, and a lot of tech companies who received that money, they bank their venture capital money was, was flooding in. But a lot of these companies are unprofitable. And this is sort of just my, my theory. And uh, they, you know, they're, they're going to be constantly withdrawing money unless new funding is coming in from venture capital and initial public offerings. That wasn't a problem in 2020 and 2021, but it was in 2022. Okay, so this this uh, if, if argument that uh, you, you this observation that rising interest rates, especially when they're very quick, can hurt banks and cause bank failures. Uh, you, you, you cited several examples from the 70s and 80s and Silicon Valley Bank. That in some way contradicts or challenges the notion, John, that you know I've heard, I've said, I've heard on many TVs that rising rates are good for banks. Are they? Well, it depends if you're asset sensitive or liability sensitive. If you're asset sensitive, then it's great. If you're liability sensitive, then it's horrible. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that if it's asset sensitive, the yield on your assets is going to outpace, in a rising rate environment, the yield on your assets is going to outpace the yield on your liabilities. It's the opposite of your liability sensitive. And so that's, a bank can be a bank can be positioned however I want a bank wants to be positioned. There's there's credit there's derivative instruments. There's I mean all you can, whatever you want you can do. The smart thing is to be neutral. The smart thing is to be neutral because if there's one thing we know it's that nobody can predict this stuff. And so you just you just stay neutral. You earn a healthy return on equity and just move on down the road. What is going on? What is the what's the root cause of all of this? What is the root cause of all this? Well, how would you, what would you say the root cause is of all of this? Rising rates, large influx of liquidity in 2020, quantitative easing that caused banks to then you know increase deposits because they bought back the securities that the Fed bought. So M2 went up. You know that's the chart that everyone's talking about. And now M2 is negative. And the volatility. You know if this happened over six years, maybe it would be okay. But over two years, it's it's quite extreme. Am I am I close? You're you're that's the liquidity. You're right on with the liquidity. So. If you go back to like 2001, 2002, after September 11th, what did the Federal Reserve do? Drop the, it dropped the uh, the interest rate weight really low, right? And I mean, really low compared to back then. I mean, high compared to what we were experiencing the last few years. But like, and so then you see this OCC start issuing these bulletins. And they're like, it's basically telling the banks, like, we know we dropped the, the, the interest, interest rates are really low. And we've started to notice a bunch of you guys doing silly stuff with your securities portfolios, reaching for yield. They're like, don't do that. You go back, you see this over and over and over and over again through history. But the best story of this is that in 1836, when Andrew Jackson got rid of the second bank of the United States, okay? So it's like basically a central bank, kind of like, it was different, but it was basically a central bank. He he, he was on a 20-year charter. The Congress uh, affirmed or voted in favor of its rechartering. But then Andrew Jackson um, vetoed that vote and got rid of that bank. And so what they did is they took all the money in that bank and they distributed it to what they called pet banks. And in New York City, the pet banks were Mechanics Bank, 
Bank of America, although a different Bank of America than what we think of Bank of America today. Yeah. And I can't remember what the third bank was. But then you know what happened? All Two out of those three banks all came with damn near <laughs> within failure. And there's this great quote in this newspaper article about this from back in 18, 1837. And it was that in, it is oftentimes harder to bear prosperity than it is to bear adversity. And like that, if there's one kind of contextual way to think about all of this stuff, that's the way to think about it. Is that when there is a when there is the presence of abundance, the presence of extreme or promise of extreme prosperity, that is when the stupid stuff happens. And so the issue was up. not that liquidity was was pulled rapidly. That may have been the proximate issue, but but the prime cause was the huge influx of liquidity there. So liquidity itself is a problem. Too much liquidity. Yeah, I think what does Charlie Munger say is like a little bit of liquidity is good, but too much is bad for humanity or something like that, or is detriment to humanity. I mean, yeah, that's because you have all, I mean, if you think about every system is a system that goes in and out of equilibrium in a sense, right? And so you think about society and then cash, like we're, it's always, we're kind of like moving towards equilibrium. So you have, you dump a whole bunch of stuff on top, like you go out of equilibrium. Do you know what I mean? And so then you have to find your way back into equilibrium. And so when you think about like, what just happened with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and, and 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 Silvergate? Like, yeah, that was a little thing, but that was a little thing at the beginning of a much much bigger thing. That that liquidity surge that we had during the coronavirus pandemic, that is going to be the thing that defines the next fifty years in in, in finance, maybe longer, thirty years, forty years, fifty years, sixty years, seventy years. We don't know, but these cycles can last. The cycle before this lasted from nineteen seventy three until let's call it. 2013. So that one lasted, you know, whatever that was, whatever that is, 40 years. The cycle before that lasted for 100 years. And so, like, we're at the very beginning of this new cycle. And, and, and that's how significant that amount of liquidity was. Liqu liquidity can mean many different things. But in this case, it's just a huge rise in deposits for a variety of reasons. And if you look at JP Morgan's, all Bank of America, all banks' deposits, pretty much every bank exploded higher in, in 2020 and, and 2021 for a variety of reasons you, you can get into. But why is it itself that a problem? When I have, you know, everyone's giving me money at 0%. And so I have everyone's deposits and I'm, I can let it out at 2%, 3%, 4%, 6%. I can reach, when you said reach for yield, I can reach up for yield by taking credit risk or I can reach out for yield by taking duration risk. It is the latter that Silicon Valley Bank did. and uh, that was a very bad risk to take given that the Federal Reserve jacked interest rates up by 475 basis points in about a year, uh, which leads us to say very few people were expecting. That's right. I mean, so let me make a point about the liquidity. So it's not just, so there's two, as I have come to think about it, there's two tight in, in this context. There's, you need to think about liquidity in two, two contexts, okay? Or two, two kind of two buckets, okay? There's liquidity that's already within the system. It's like already within the U.S. economy, right? It's already here. It just sloshes around from, you know, from one place to another place to another place, right? That's fine. I mean, like that, that is all that, that's the aggregate amount is in or moving towards equilibrium. Where you come into a situation like this, where it like will define a new era, is when you have the introduction uh, of novel liquidity flows, right? So novel, new. So in, in from another system, so let's say Europe to the United States, that's what, that's what happened back in 1870s. And that's what caused that, that huge 100-year cycle. 
Or you can have it move out of the system and into another system. That what happened in the 70s when the oil crisis caught, like totally switched around um, kind of the trade patterns in the, in, in the global trade patterns. And money started flowing out of the United States as opposed to into the United States. So that's what caused that second, that, that one from 73 to base, let's call it 13. Um, and so, but there's another type of liqu novel liquidity. And that's the type I like to think about is it comes up through the ground like a geyser. Okay, and that's what like the Federal Reserve just creates it out of thin air. Or, like there's a monetary policy or deficit spending by the government. And then that money is then immediately inserted into the economy. So like that is another type of powerful liquidity, uh, a novel liquidity. And so that's that's what we have. And so that's that's the type that you need to think about when you're thinking about like what defines, you know, kind of like and it has a big impact um, on the economy. And now I've like gone off on my monologue and I've forgotten your question. Um. My question is, why is it a problem when there's a huge influx of liquidity? Oh, my! the bank of John and Jack swelled by $100 billion. That's a, that sounds like a great problem to have. Why is that a problem? It's a problem because that money's got to go somewhere. The money has got to go somewhere, right? And so if your system is within equilibrium or close to equilibrium, then where's the money going to go? All that new money going to go? You're going you're gonna to have to go out on the risk, on the risk spectrum. Right. And so you think about like, OK, the financial crisis, like so the financial crisis was the last hurrah of that that liquidity surge that started in the 70s, in the early 70s. OK, what 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 brought it about? Well, it was about what subprime mortgages, right? Subprime. And so why were subprime mortgages such a big deal? Well, some people had figured out how to securitize subprime mortgages. And so they thought they got rid of the risk because you could spread it across the country. And just, you have, you know, you have no geographic fine. concentration, all that kind of stuff. So you, you have the securitization. Well, why why did the people making those securities make those securities? They made those securities because there was so damn much money and it needed to go somewhere. And it was all this money that was in like the coffers of Saudi Arabia and as well, all these oil producing countries that had made all of that money when oil prices jacked up in the 70s and stayed there ever since. They needed that to go somewhere. And the, the US has the deepest and largest capital markets in the world. So that's where it came. So they, they, they needed to make securities to find that home. And so what it does is it just pushes you way out on the risk spectrum. Yes. But now the securities that were bought that were causing a lot of problem that are sitting on some bank balance sheets, they are not subprime mortgage-backed securities uh you're you know tied together into CDOs, not credit risk. They are given to you by Ginny May, Fannie Mae, uh all of these government agencies. So the credit risk is is not really a problem really at all. It is interest rate risk. Is that significant? And and you also tied it back to uh, the seventies and eighties. Like what happened in what happened in the Volcker era? I mean, first Pennsylvania failed. Yeah. <laughs> For, like duration risk or interest rate risk, like it, it can be as deadly as credit risk. You know what I mean? It can be as we as we saw. You know, it can be just it can be just as deadly. And so, like, um, if anything, it could be more so because on credit risk, you don't know how much money you lost, but actually, people can't really. You know, it, it it could be worse, but people don't know it. But in interest rate risk, it's like you bought you bought paper that yields three percent, and now interest rates are at seven percent. Finance one hundred and one. I put in my calculator. I know exactly how much money you lost. Oh, that money that you lost is more than the book value or equity of your entire company. Your insolvent bank run ensues. Well, and here's another here's another kind of an, 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 an anecdote to kind of like to throw into the mix. So there was a bank that failed in two thousand and January sixteenth, two thousand and nine. Okay. Is the first failure of that year, and that year was the—that's when failure—the failures really jacked up. I think there were 100 and 
45 or something failures that year. Then the next year, they're 152 or something like that. Okay. So, but that, that, that's the heart of the failures of the financial crisis. Okay. Um, and this was a really peculiar one because what it had done is in, in 2003, four, six, and seven, it had said, you know what? Interest rates are really low. Like I was saying, those bulletins that the OCC was releasing, like saying like, don't do stupid stuff with your portfolio. So one of the things that regulators like, well, why don't you just go buy preferred shares of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? I mean, it's there's an implicit government guarantee. I mean, like, what is it? John, I read that on Maxwell Banks today in preparation for this interview. I didn't realize that the regulators encouraged them to buy that. The regulators encouraged them, <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so when you read, so whenever there's a whenever there's a failure, whenever there's a bank failure that uh, will uh, cost either the, the greater of twenty five million dollars or two percent of the banks, the failed banks' assets. There needs to be what's called a material loss review. And the material loss review isn't done by the FDIC, but it's instead done by the Office of the Inspector General of the Treasury Department. And so they go through and they look at why did this thing fail? And then they say, well, how, what did the regulators do? And did the regulators act appropriately? Right. So the idea is that you have this kind of new, this kind of this neutral uh, uh, um, party in there kind of assessing er everything that went on. And it is, I've, I've read, I don't know how many dozens or hundreds of material loss reviews, but it is the only one that's like sympathetic to the individuals because what they saw, the, the, like everybody was like, these things are safe. They're safe, mm -hmm. they're safe, they're safe, they're safe, they're safe. So these guys are like, the, the interest rates have been dropped because Greensand dropped after September 11th. So they're looking for yield. That's the highest yield that they can get on what seemed to be super duper safe securities. So they get them and here's here's what this, and then, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are then uh, taken uh, over. Two thousand eight, taken over by the government on September seventh, I think, in two thousand and eight. And then, when that happens, Hank Paulson has a joint press release with a guy named I think is um, uh, Lockhart. I think is his last name, Josh Lockhart or something like that. He's the head of this new thing that's going to oversee Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And they come out and they say, "Look, um, we're basically we're, they don't say we're wiping out the equity." But they say, look, common comes last, preferred comes right before that. So like, we're just putting that out there, basically saying we're they're basically, they're saying, but not saying that we're wiping out the equity. And the next two sentences, they say, we know a lot of community banks hold this stock. And uh, there's only a couple of them that hold them in significant amount, but like, we're aware of that. And so I, I just think about like the these guys who ran this bank, men and women who ran this bank, were probably watching that press release. Yeah. And when they said that sentence, they must have been like, uh, we're screwed because they had, it was like 270 some percent of their tangible common equity was that that's, that was the size of their position in Fannie and Freddie stock. I mean, it just obliterated that thing overnight. It just went just like up and up and smoke. Hey there. Sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. 
I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. There are some pretty alarming charts out there if you put the data together as as people have about the unrealized losses on banks' balance sheet. It's not just Silicon Valley Bank. And as a percentage of book value, equity, uh, tangible book value, whatever you want to say. And you know, in some cases, it's true, correct me if I'm wrong, that, and I'm not just talking about Silicon Valley Bank, that the unrealized losses exceed the book value, meaning that mark-to-market, if the bank had to be liquidated tomorrow, it would be you know, mark-to-market insolvent. Is this true? How worried should we be about it? Are there you know, a plethora of examples throughout history of, oh yeah, that bank was mark-to-market insolvent, but it, it still is with us today? I mean, how big of a problem is this? So first of all, I'm not somebody who thinks that I wouldn't recommend anybody be worried. I want to, that does not going to do anybody any good. You yeah. know what I mean? So we'll start with that. Um, uh, but yes, there are some banks that when you when you mark their so important to know, and I know you know this distinction, but you know, there's two that you can hold, you can designate securities in, in, in one of two ways. One is available for sale. And if you designate them available for sale, you have to mark you're, you're just constantly marking them to market, right? As you're coming out with your balance sheet. Or Which you, means, oh, uh, you know, interest rates went from zero to three percent. We're marking it down from 100 cents on the dollar to 87 cents on the dollar, and that's reflected in. Is that reflected in net income or in book value or both? I'm I'm not an accountant, as but it's either going to hit your tangible book value, or it's going to hit your net income. Okay, so yes. it's going to be one of those, and neither one of them is good. Yes. Um, but in the other in the other bucket, it's called hold to maturity, and those securities are um, you do not. Mark, you don't, the, you do not change the value of those securities on on, the, on your balance sheet, because the idea is that look, if these are riskless securities, i.e., like government U.S. government bonds, right, and you're going to hold them until they mature, well, you're going to get the, the 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 value of the bond when it matures. So you don't need to adjust it, you know, and so um, and that's where like you know your your banks with big bond portfolios. Will, that's where they'll put their bonds a lot of times, right? For that, for that very reasons, because you don't want that volatility. And so this is what I would say about, should you be worried and, and, and all this kind of stuff? We don't want our banks marking their bond portfolios to market. We don't want our banks marking their loan books to market because you go through these cyclical patterns. That's just part of humanity. You go through the cyclical patterns and if you're marking to market everything, they all fail every time, every time, <laughs> like every time. You, you want your banks to fail, every, all the banks to fail every time? You, know, you don't want to fail every time like this is is kind of an accounting fiction that they've created to like make it possible to like to to run these highly leveraged institutions through 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 kind of the vicious cycle that that the united states financial system is right so it needs to happen if if hold of maturity wasn't happen you know very few banks would exist so you, you, 1929 1933 would be would be every single day sure but you said it's a fiction it is a fiction I mean, uh, kind of, right? It kind of is, right? I mean, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, because it gives. Well, because it's like if you if you sold it, you're marking it at hundred dollars. If you sold it now, you'd get eighty cents on the dollar. And I'll I'll note in non financial corporations, including financial corporations such as Berkshire Hathaway, if they hold equities, they have to mark those to market. You know, if there's a SPAC that has a warrant liability, uh, they can mark those you know up and down every, every single quarter. So, 
banks are giving being given a special exemption, but you're or an insurance companies too, probably. But you're saying that they need the exemption. I'm saying we need it. Yeah. Okay. I'm saying I'm saying the U.S. economy needs it. Okay. Because this is a country that like th these are these are not banking issues. Okay. These are fundamental economic issues. These are what we think is important for the U.S. for the for our country. And so one thing that we think is important is being safe, having a strong military, right? Like that's really important. <laughs> like you have China coming up, like, you know, no, no, we don't know what their right, what their plans are. You know what I mean? Like we want to be protected. Well, mi militaries are not cheap, right? You got to have a, a strong economy is the, is the key to a strong military. Okay. So now what makes a strong economy? Okay. Well, you, you just break down economic growth, right? It's just labor, capital, and a productivity coefficient. Okay. Like, we can only do so much with labor. You know, that's just like, well, you know, we let so many in a year and like we have a birth rate, death rate, all that kind of stuff, right? Like that's your labor. It's the capital where you can really juice your growth, right? And who is the primary provider of capital? It's banks. And why are banks the primary providers of capital? Because they use 10X leverage. Mm -hmm. And so like that, it, like if, if as a country we say, you know what? Economic growth is not that important. A big, powerful military is not that important. We'll take our chances. Yeah, then like let's 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 not ignore these fictions and let's like let's punish all the banks like for like having so much leverage. Um, but if I, I would suspect most people would prefer to be safe, <laughs> you know what I mean? I see your point, John. But just for the sake of argument, you could say if you, we have these held to maturity conventions, banks can feel safe by parking the you know securities that would trade at eighty five cents or seventy eight cents on the dollar. At $100, banks feel safe, and so they buy a lot of bonds, and so there's a moral hazard. I'm not the biggest fan of most moral hazard arguments, but I actually do see you know that that could be a, a case, right? Oh, sure. I, I, what's the problem? I'll just put it up, market it at $100. Yeah, but I mean, so would you say that should should banks mark to market their loan books? If Bank A has a ton of agency mortgage-backed securities that they're valuing at 100 and then interest rates go from zero to 4.75. So interest rates go. So yeah, the calculation is, is, it's not easy, but it's, it's to be done. But a mortgage book is so complicated because it's, you know, in, individual mortgage, individual mortgage, individual mortgage. Um, but there are an interest rate component there, right? I mean, mortgage-backed security is built up of the same thing as mortgages. So maybe it makes sense. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I a, bond, know, a bond and a loan are the same thing. There's the same exact thing. It's the same thing. You know what I mean? And so, so here's here's the alternatives. Like, so if you think about this, say, okay, well, like, we could, let's say we go down the mark to market road on everything, or even if even just on all the securities, right? What would that mean? Well, banks would have to sit with much, a lot more capital. They'd have mm -hmm. to sit with a lot more capital. And so, what 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 is that going to do? That's going to reduce your return on that capital. And you're also, for, there's going to be a, a transitionary period where it's kind of your level setting to be having the much more capitalized banks. And that is going to have a an appreciable difference on your growth rate. And so everything, like anything can be done. This is a democracy. I mean, although like our politicians are kind of clownish, but like, like you know, we, it, these are choices that, that we get to make. So we say, are we willing to trade off these cyclical patterns in order to get accelerated growth in order to have all these other things? Or do we do we not have that that mix right? And I, I think I mean it's it's a kind of more of a societal question, right? Okay, so setting aside the issue of should it be the case that banks are allowed to do that, that you know that's a wormhole in, in and of itself, and you make a, a lot of good arguments. Earlier, I asked, 
should people be worried about the fact that there are other banks who have unrealized losses on, on their securities <laughs> and in some cases that exceed you know tangible book value? I wasn't saying, you know, I, I agree that people, it's a good if people are not worried because crisis can feed on itself, as we saw with sort of the, you know, rumor mongering and which, which turned out to be correct um, with Silicon Valley. And it's, it's, it could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. But so setting aside, should people be worried? What is your view on will other banks feel the, ex, uh, you know, meet the same fate as Silicon Valley Bank if they also have the unrealized losses? To what degree does it depend on the deposit outflows? And you know there are banks now where their common stocks have collapsed maybe 80, 90% in value for exactly this reason. And of course, the rumor monger continues where if the stock goes down, people will draw more money. But, and, and then there's been liquidity injection from you know the big banks. Uh, and then uh, there's the bank, the bank term funding program. So a lot, a lot we haven't talked about. But yeah, you know, John, sticking sticking to right now, I mean, what is your base case for sort of how this thing evolves? I mean, is the banking panic over? Is it just getting started or is it about to end? I mean, what? And obviously, no one has a crystal ball, but I, I just want to hear your your sort of high level thoughts. Okay, in my opinion, in my opinion, that's yes. <laughs> that is caveat. I think it's over. Okay, I think it's over. That doesn't mean everything is over, but we have been through the acute period. Like, I don't, I don't think we're going to see another one of those here. Bit, I mean, if here for a while, um, I think that the, the response, the government's response, was powerful enough that um, it took care of that. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be other failures. But you, you, when you think back of those days, like when, the, when that was going on in Silicon Valley, I mean, there was like, people were panicked. I mean, I have friends who like in VC world and like, they were trying to get their money out running. And then I had people, that, I knew people who were getting their money out of First Republic. I think those days are over. Now let's game out like what, what it could look like going forward. What, if you look, and you, to look forward, you have to look back. If you look at all these different crises, like you see that picture back there, the yellow and the blue, it's, yes. that's, that's the panic of 18, uh, that's the panic of 1830, I think 1837 or 1857. And what you see over and over again through history and all those, those major panics is these two spikes. The first spike is the market spike though. So that's uh, uh, bank failures as a percentage of, uh, of all banks. You, you have a, an, an initial spike that's caused by the market response to like an overextension of credit. Mm -hmm. But then the follow-up spike is caused by the regulatory response and readjustment because the regulatory response in a highly competitive industry where you're dealing with a 100% fungible product, it, it, can, it changes the equilibrium. It totally jacks the equilibrium off. So you got to then get back into equilibrium. And so then that's that second spike. So the question is, is like, well, what's the regulatory response going to be? And is that going to cause issues? I, I don't think that it will, but it, you, do, you don't know for sure. So let's say like, I mean, you could say you could see a situation where they say, okay, you're going to mark to market all your bond portfolios, right? And so that's going to make it harder to return a, a decent return on equity. And so you, what you'll have, there will be banks that in that scenario will go out and do stupid stuff with their loan books because they're trying to maintain the earn their cost capital. They're trying to like maintain their position as the most profitable bank in the United States or that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Like that's where the, that's the carry on effects um, that I think that, that you'd, you'd want to be looking out for. Mm. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, how do you think bank profitability will be affected by this? People are saying, oh, you know, banks used to be able to pay, you know, nothing on deposits and earn a spread on loans above the interest on reserve. And if they wanted to even park it at the fed, they could get, you know, 4.6 or 4.7% there. Uh, 
that that was a great juicy arbitrage and it, that spread will narrow now because people are pulling money out of the banks oh, and this is what i want to ask you about you know people are people are pulling money out of banks deploying them into money market funds buying treasuries how does that does it, how does that affect bank profitability uh, and bank liquidity uh, the banks will make the banks will always make money and there there'll be years here and there they don't make as much but the banks will always make money i mean they are a central component of the ecosystem they're a central component of that equilibrium right so like the equilibrium has got a part of that where it will settles is the banks like they have their fingers on that scale i don't mean that in some sort of like conspiracy oriented way but in terms of like you ha- they've got to earn a cost of capital or like the capital won't be attracted to that that place and so like it, things will just set like it, they'll just set like there you have these intervening time periods where like interest rates shot up real quickly and so like you know it's now it's out of equilibrium so but it'll move back into equilibrium you'll have banks that'll be able to earn 12% of their equity 14% of their equity assuming they don't like jack up the capital rules you know really high it'll just go back to how it was you know what i mean it'll just that's the one thing if you the, the longer you can look out over time in in, in your head like the, the the if you it just everything goes back to normal everything goes back to normal Always. And it always has. And I think we should expect it to always do that in the future. In the, in the long term, definitely. But if so, if the cost of deposits is going to continue to rise and will even accelerate, uh, how will banks make as much money? Will they be making more loans? Will the spread on those loans go up? What yeah. They, that's a, what you do is it's the spread. They make money from this. It doesn't matter where the interest rates are as long as you can make a spread. And so that's, that's, I mean, that's what they'll have to do. The, the lending rate, you know, what it will cost to borrow money will just go up. Mm. Or they'll like try to find some like, I mean, you know, like non-interest income source, but like they're just, he just can't, he, they're not like standing on the street corner of every street. <laughs> so it's like, um, yeah, you, you just have to, you just have to raise the, the, the cost to borrow. What about, and I know this is an issue much more in residential, it's very acute in residential uh, mortgages than maybe perhaps other sectors, but when interest rates are at zero, everyone wants a mortgage. And when interest rates are at 7%, it's a lot harder. So when the bank wants to make a mortgage, there are fewer people who want a mortgage. And when the bank was like, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, interest rates are at zero, I'm making a mortgage at 2.9%, I don't, I, I'm not really making much money, and I'm, I'm vulnerable to interest rate hikes, as we've seen over the past year, that's when everyone wants a mortgage. So to what degree is that is that a problem in other parts of lending, commercial real estate, uh, um, you know, consumer banking, stuff like that? Well, if you hold all else equal, higher rates will reduce demand for whatever that is, right? But you, this is not a world that you, you do hold all else equal, right? When do you have high rates? You have high rates when the economy is going really well. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a counterbalance. Mm-hmm. When you have low rates, you have low rates when the economy is doing really horrible. So yeah. actually, if you actually think about it, it's actually reversed. The demand, there's an absence of demand when the rates are low, and there's too much demand when rates are high. It's 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 like this counterintuitive reality about the demand of of credit, the things that are bought with credit. Right, but for residential mortgages over the past three or four years, I mean, demand really has fallen off cliff now that interest are higher than than shorter. But it, yeah. But in, in in every aspect, I'm I'm sure you're right, generally. Yeah, I mean, like there there are periods of, of transition. There's like six months or eight months, or like there are these periods of transition where like we're fighting our way back into equilibrium, where everything is just like kind of wacky and like, and we're in that right now. We're in that right now. But we'll get back into equilibrium, or, or like we like we'll more closely approximate 
this idea of equilibrium, right? Um, and and that'll be like like I said, I mean, just think about how many times has this happened. It happened after the financial crisis, right? It happened after the, all that stuff in the '80s. I mean, there were like there were like four crises at the same time in the 1980s. There was the Great Depression. I mean, it's just like it, that historical context is like it helps you be like, oh, just another one of these things. And not only is it another one of these things, it's a little one of these things, not a big one. Mm -hmm. To what degree do you think this will impact bank lending? And maybe take us back to you know how much or we go back even further after the Great Financial Crisis. We had all this quantitative easing. Uh, assumption was, oh, banks are going to lend this money out. Of course, you know, you don't really lend a specific part of money. It's like social security, but, um, uh, and the banks didn't, you know, lending was actually quite, um, low. However, I believe we have had a, a sort of a lending boom in 2021. And even as 2022, do you think this panic might make banks a little more cautious? What do you think? What do you say? Yeah. I mean, these things always increase or reduce risk appetite. The banks, the one point, banks want to lend money. They mm -hmm. want to lend money. <laughs> if every good loan that walks in that door is going to go, and they're going to they're going to make that loan. But if you don't have good loans walking in the door, you don't want us. We don't want our banks making those loans. It's just that's just as simple as it is. Isn't it true that default rates, delinquencies, net charge off, credit reserve bills, however you want to put it, in terms of people not paying banks back when they make loans, has been extraordinarily low in 2020, 2021, and 2022? And even now, you know, default rates on auto loans, let's say, are uh, pretty much where they were in 2019. More, I mean, mortgage delinquencies are pretty close to the to the record uh, level, lo lowest ever according to the Federal Reserve. So, if you have if so few defaults, what's the what's the problem? Why why not make them some loans? And <laughs> hey, if, if your net interest margins just got shook by oh, we bought all these, you know, made loans at two percent and bought mortgages at mortgage-backed securities at two percent, what better way to you know increase the net, net interest margin by lending even more? Yeah, it would send that. And there will be banks that do that, <laughs> yeah. And they will pay for it doing that. But to, to, to again, we you don't know whether a loan a loan isn't good until it's paid back. It just it's not good until it's paid back. Until then, it's like TBD. That's what it is. You know what I mean? It's like you. I just don't. You just don't know it. And so so you 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 got to keep that in mind. And so the really good bankers they're constantly worried about their loan books. It's the it's the bankers and like let's be clear like banking is like any it's like the policemen it's like garbage men it's like you know the lunch ladies it's like whatever right there's there is a spectrum of quality okay and it's like the 10 10 80 rule you know like there's 10 really good 10 percent really good there's 10 percent that really bad and evil and then there's the ones in the middle that can kind of go either way depending on the influence of the environment um it like the really good bankers that your your renee jones is the goggins uh, uh aaron graf down at triumph uh brent beardall at um at washington federal like they are patient. They're patient. So you have like, let me give you an example. So Patrick Goggin at Hingham Institution for Savings. So this is a phenomenal, phenomenal bank. Okay. But one of the things that they do, to, they have like their efficiency ratio is like 20 some percent. I mean, it's like, it's incredible. Um, or I haven't checked it the last couple of quarters. But explain like explain for me and the audience, what, what again is uh, efficiency ratio? So the efficiency ratio is the, the percent of your revenue that you're spending on expenses. So let's say you bring you bring in $100 of revenue and you have $60 of expenses, your efficiency ratio would be 60%. Mm -hmm. Right? So the bigger the lower the efficiency ratio, 
the better, right? Because that means more money is being kept and just dropping straight to the bottom line, okay? And so the way it has, a, one of the reasons it has such a low efficiency ratio, in, in addition to just their discipline around costs, is that they buy, they borrow a lot of money from like the federal home loan board and then that kind of stuff. So you don't have to have as big of a branch network and branch networks are expensive. Well, when you're using that kind of financing structure, that you're liability sensitive in, in situations like this. And so you're, the cost of your liability outpaces the cost of your, your assets. And so like their NIM gets, their NIM gets crushed. And so you say, okay, like you talk to, you talk to them, you say, well, what are you guys going to do? And this is basically what they say. So like, look, like things are going to go back. Like the, the biggest mistake we can make right now is to go out and change everything just because of the, 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 the short term things that are happening right now, because we know things will go back. And so we just got to stick to our guns, just ride this out, and everything will be just fine. What do you mean by go back? I mean, go, interest rates will go back to zero? No, no, but no, but the, the, it'll, it'll adjust. Interest rates are always coming. Right. Mean, the, 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 the story of interest rates is that they're always moving. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, will they go up to 20% like they did in the eight? Probably not, right? But they're, they're always moving. And so what I mean is that we'll, we'll get back into a place where that spread for the banks is more of a kind of a, a normal spread. Right now, it's not because we had because you're in such a dynamic environment where it, the rate shot up so fast mm-hmm. that it kind of like broke all of that. Like the banks will get get it back where there's a, there's a healthy spread, and and you, we want that as society. Like we want our banks to earn money, not too much money, but we want them to earn a, re- a respectable amount. Right. So if if it's your base case that loan spreads over cost of deposits have to you know, return to something that is you know good good for banks. And if cost of deposits is going up, that means the loan yields will go up. There are two ways that could happen, I imagine. One is a huge, you know, the demand for credit continues to be high, or the supply of credit from banks goes down. The if the if supply of credit goes from banks goes down, that probably not very good for the economy. Whereas if people demand a lot of credit, that actually, you know, could be quite good. Do you have a view on which it is? Well, and to your point, yeah, because I mean that's that there's an oversupply of credit right now. Why is there over? Because all that liquidity, got all that liquidity, right? I mean, it's like the ton that it's still in the system. It is still there. A little bit went out. Just a tiny bit went out from this from this that panic we had, right? Tiny bit, but it is still there. It's still there, and that's why, like, there's all these people out there, like, oh, commercial real estate, that commercial real estate, this, you know, I'm like. That's going to be the next big thing. Like MT Bank, like they've masterfully, masterfully managed the liquidity situation. I mean, just like what Renee Jones has done there over the past. I mean, it's just like it's mind-boggling how well they did that. Tell um, me, I, I know they have a really good reputation, but I don't know the details. Tell me, tell me about how you manage a liquidity situation, and maybe we can also, you know, talk about hedging interest rate risk. So later. So uh, you know, the, you, the biggest thing is that so you're going to these conferences, right? Renee doesn't own a majority of that stock. He runs a very, very small, it's a huge bank. And Ray owns a very, 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 very small percentage of it. Um, so that means that he, he's kind of he's kind of at the whims to a certain extent of the market, right? And so they go to these events, they get on these conference calls when they're and and all the analysts are all the time. Are you gonna protect your net interest margin? Are you gonna protect your net interest income? Like, how are you gonna do that? How are you gonna do that? How are you gonna do that? What the analysts are saying is go buy long bonds. That's what all basically what they're saying, okay? Because they're interested in the short term. Okay. Renee is basically like, no. Not going to do that. Like we know that we're not. If when you you do not buy bonds when the interest rate is zero percent, just it's just like a fundamental. You just you just don't do that. It's just yeah. like it's ludicrous. Like he's like we're just gonna we're just gonna wait this out. We're gonna what we'll do is in response is we will portfolio some of our mortgages as opposed to securitize them. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're retaining some more of that yield and you're, and you are in control of that credit risk, right? So if you're comfortable with the loans that you're making, like bring on your balance sheet, take the yield from that and just sit out and hold it, hold out until interest rates go up and just wait in cash, 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 interest rates goes. And so that's what they did. So their, their, their bond portfolios are, are just naturally going through attrition and going to really, really low because of these interest rate situation. And then the, the, when the fed jacked up interest rates to 5% in um, 2022, that's when they made their move and bought a whole bunch of mortgages or not, not mortgages, but that's when they bought a whole bunch of bonds. So just like waiting it out. And so the harder part, is when everybody is telling you to do this one thing and you know what's wrong, the hardest part is like just sticking to your guns and doing the right thing. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. How many sort of M&T banks are there out there? And how many Silicon Valley banks are, are there out there? And just because it's a Silicon Valley bank doesn't mean it's going to fail. By Silicon Valley bank, I mean... Uh, didn't manage their interest rate risk appropriately. And maybe if you disagree with that, we can get into that. We can get into hedging and the duration of deposit, which is a very fascinating topic that I'm uh, a little little about. But the, the question is, how many banks are there that manage their interest rate risk prudently and how many did not? Uh, not very many managed it well. <laughs> but like, that is not to be, that's, I'm not saying I would have done it any better. You know what I mean? Like, I probably wouldn't have. I would, I would probably done it just the same. In fact, I think you can even take it a step further. Like, think about if you were the CFO of Silicon Valley Bank, and you're sitting there, and a hundred billion dollars in cash is dumped on your head. What are you going to do? And so remember, and this is where everybody's talking: lower for longer, lower for longer, lower for longer. That's what everyone's saying back then. We're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. We're not even thinking yeah. about thinking Jay about Powell's raising rates. Yeah. Exactly. And then, oh, oh, then we saw what happens then. Then you see inflation go boom, shoot up in 2021, right? It like, in, I think it's April, or like mid, kind of close to the middle of 2021, inflation shoots up. So you think like, okay, they they still had a lot of cash, so they, they were they're like, oh well, now inflation is going up. So what does that mean? Remember what the argument was then? Transitory. Infl- inflation is transitory, 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 right? Everybody thought inflation was transitory. So if you think it's transitory, you don't you continue on lower for longer. Right, transfer means it's just going to go back to what it was before. Is the road was before is lower for longer, so you can see how that was made. And then the other mistake, really, that if there was one quote unquote mistake that they made that like maybe maybe would have been caught um, by others, it was that not all deposits should be treated equally in terms of duration. And so you have like you have somebody who goes somebody who grew up with no money and they win the lottery. And they mm. put $10 million in the, in the bank. Should the bank assume that that $10 million is going to stay in there for like 
30 years? Uh, probably not. <laughs> like it may last for two years and then get spent down to zero. So that you have a surge deposit scenario. And in those scenarios, what you do is you adjust the duration on those. And so if there's, you, you use a coefficient to adjust the duration. And so, you know, if there is, if there is an error of the errors that were committed, that was probably the, the principal one. And yeah. so they didn't adjust it for the surge. And it doesn't seem like they did. So deposits can be called overnight can be, uh, de demand deposits, but that doesn't mean they have a duration of one day because many instances they, they stay there for, for lifetime. It's, it's about the optionality. So you said the Silicon Valley was assigning a duration of about seven years to its deposits. And I assume that's based on historical patterns based on, oh, from 2013 to 2023, the average withdrawal rate was X. So the maturity was Y, the duration is Z, and I'm you know, probably accurate. But is the mistake to assume that historical patterns would continue? And is that mistake you know, something that might be, you know, my words, not yours, egregious, given that the money came in last year? I mean, you can't say the money, came in, the money that came in last year is going to have a duration. It's, it's been there for one year, you know? I mean, I, I wouldn't say any mistake that was made here was egregious. I, I would say all the mistakes you can... If you if 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 you're willing to like give if you're willing to be honest with yourself, I think all of us would say I could see myself making the same damn mistake. I mean, it, it, but the if you were the CEO of a bank that had their deposits go up by you know 180 percent, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. and because the the other thing is that like you know R Renee and MT like they manage it massively, but they had there was nothing like the surge that Silicon Valley had. I mean, Silicon Valley was like it was so far out on the spectrum in terms of like, I mean, it was like <laughs> eight standard deviations. Out. I mean, it was like yeah. it, so much liquidity came into that. Like none of these other banks that have been criticizing it, none of them, none of them dealt with, with that quantity. None of them tripled in size with just cash dumped on their head. N none of them came close to that. And so like Silicon Valley, it is, it is peculiar in the quantity that came in. And, and again, uh, banking, fundamentally is about managing abundance and the hardest and the hardest time to run a bank is in times of prosperity and that's what liquidity that's what that's that's what liquidity brings about is it true that banks really should manage their interest rate risk in, in other words so that the risk is zero and the the duration of your liabilities is the same as the duration of your assets isn't the whole thing about uh, banking borrowing law borrowing short and uh, lending long and oh okay we want to hedge our rate so we're going to do a swap or we're going to issue some long-term bo uh, bonds you know maybe buy some like mortgage servicing rates or something like that but isn't isn't making lending borrowing short and lending long at its core okay so this is the yeah yeah so like th this is a nuance but it's an important nuance in that there's a difference between taking a directional bet on interest rates and earning a spread on your on, on the money, on the difference between your what you're borrowing and what you're what you're selling that money at. I mean, there it's a fundamental spread or difference, and like it it doesn't see. It seems like a nuance. It doesn't matter, but like when you think about how that impacts the decision making, which each incremental decision, it's really significant, right? And so it's all this. It's, it's a series of incremental decisions that lead to everything. You know what I mean? And so like that, and in 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 an, in an environment where there's basically no margin for error, the quality of those decisions matter. And they've got to be made for the right reasons. So if you're making them for the wrong reasons because you want to do directional bets um, on interest rates or anything, 
Like you're, because we know you can't see the future. So we know that's a crapshoot. Maybe they'll work, but maybe they don't. You know what I mean? And so like that, that's, that's, that's the difference. Is the uh, treating of deposits assigning a duration to them that is you know longer than just very short-term duration? Is that something that's widespread without the industry, not just Silicon Valley Bank? Because I, and I presume you know, many people watching this who say they think of de- demand as borrowing short, you know, you can get it at any time, but is it, is it widespread in, you know, among professional bankers and, and banks to say, oh, our deposit base has a um, duration of five or of th- two or of 10? So the, the, it's called asset liability management is like what that whole, like kind of the, kind of the, the, the thing is that it's about matching the duration. And so that came that came about really in the 80s when you had that first surge. It's basically similar to today, but it happened, you know, 40 some years ago. And so that's when people are like, whoa, we need to like match because at the, that was when that caused the savings and loan crisis. Savings and loan crisis was that you had all these thrifts, these savings and loan organizations associations that were all they could do, all they could hold on their balance sheet was uh, 30 year, basically 30 year fixed rate mortgages. And they were averaging like 8%. Okay. <laughs> the the short term interest rate went up to like 18 19%. So they're paying they I don't know how far they got up but like 14 15 16% to borrow money that then they're lending out at 8% doesn't work. So that's when everybody's like okay we need to like put some discipline around this 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 duration risk, you know what I mean? And so that's when asset liability management came out. And so the answer to your question is yeah, every bank does it. Every single bank does it. Now, the question is how formalized is the process? Your smaller banks is going to be less formalized, right? Um, the bank, the bigger banks like JP Morgan is going to be really, really, really sophisticated. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you want your banks doing that. It's, it's they, they need to do it or else they'll happen. What happened to Silicon Valley Bank will happen to them. Right. Uh, do you think that the expected duration of deposits a year ago from banks, not just Silicon Valley Bank, how does that compare to the sort of realized duration that we've seen uh, right now. And I guess duration of interest rate sensitivity, but also just how many people are withdrawing their money. Because I think it was on Friday that, uh, and I, I can pull the statistics up. I mean, pe- people are withdrawing their, their money from banks. And so does that rate of withdrawal match or exceed the rate of withdrawal that was anticipated by banks, maybe let's say a year ago, given the sort of asset uh, liability management that, that you just talked about? And I so like for example, sorry. Um, yeah. Commercial bank deposits dropped by 125 billion dollars in the week ended March 22nd, the ninth straight period of declines. Uh, that's just the data point. Sorry. Um, okay, so um, my guess I don't know the I don't know for sure what the answer is, but my guess is that the what happened did not match up with the models. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like. Because then you wouldn't that wouldn't have happened because the models would have associated, you know what I mean, taking care of it. So my guess is that the duration on a lot of this, at First Republic, I, I I'm sure they were like, well, maybe there's not, not as long a duration as we thought they were, obviously. Um, so but like, you know, you still need to like modeling is like it's kind of like a monkey game. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, let's just be honest, like modeling anything is kind of monkeyish because it's like nobody knows what's gonna happen in the future. But at the same time, if you run an institution with like 40,000 employees or 200,000 employees, like you can't just like wake up in the morning and be like, what are we going to do today? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you right. kind of got to have a plan. And so like models kind of, that's the, where they, that's kind of the role that they play. And like, I'm just picking JP Morgan as an example of the long-term bank that, you know, by, by my examination and other people have corroborated this, um, managed their interest rate quite well in terms of this, their size. They, they 
didn't take much duration risk, had like shorter term durations, and they did a lot of hedging. Um, if in an opposite world, interest rates were still at zero, Jay Powell sort of kept to his word of not even thinking about thinking. And I'm not saying he broke his word. He, he did. He did give sort of ample evidence to people paying attention. But um, you know, if interest rates were still at zero, people would still be saying, "Oh my God, Jamie Dimon, he put on all these rate, rate hedges." What, Jamie, why not take a little a little extension risk? I mean, you got Silicon Valley Bank; they're buying all these twenty year mortgages, and you you're buying this four year piece of garbage. What's going on, Jamie? I thought you were a good banker. That's right. That's it. It's a Warren Buffett in his 1990 shareholder letter. And he's talking about, he's explaining why he bought 10% of Wells Fargo. Okay. And it's like, I, mean, I don't know how many words this, that section of the letter is, but it's, it's not, it, couldn't be, it can't be more than 800 words. But it is like, it's, it's like, I mean, like, it's the fundamental, it's like, it is the, is, is the mother root of sophisticated modern banking philosophy, what, what, how he articulate, articulates it there. And it's all based around this idea that, like, look, you know, banks have all this leverage, you know, so they're vulnerable to mistakes. Mistakes are the rule, not the exception. I and mean, the reason the mistakes are the rule not, are not the exception is because this concept of institutional imperative. And that is that basically the way Keynes defines institutional imperative is that um, it's better to uh, it's better to 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 die a conventional death than it is to live a non-conventional life. <laughs> As in, you know, and I mean, if there's one thing about banks, it's there's a, there's a herd mentality, herd mentality, and that there's a, right, a lot of reasons for that, and they're understandable. But um, but yeah, John. Before I ask my, my final few questions, tell us a little bit about your Substack. Why did you want to start it, and and how did sort of your prior work lead you to to creating the Substack? So I I'm a, I study banking. I just try to figure out ways to get paid to study banking, and I, I love it. I like I'm I'm fascinated by it. It's like a subject matter that like. I really have been working to crack the nut and to reduce it to its essence, distill it, kind of distill it all the way down to its essence. And I've been working on that for, I don't know, a dozen years, something like that. And so at 12 years in, I, I couldn't, I wasn't able to distill it down to that thing. And I'm like, what is going on? So at the beginning of last year, I was like, I'm just going to give everything I got to this. And I spent the entire year, I'm mean like 18 hour days, every single day, Monday through Sunday, all, holidays, everything, every single thing. Only thing I did is I gave myself an hour a day where I could play pass with my boys. I have two 20-year-old, 10-year-old sons. I guess they're 11 now, but um, they just turned 11. So, um, so and when, and I started in 1790, I just read contemporary materials all the way through to today. And it was, I was making my way through that, and I realized the mistake that had made, that made it, that had interfered with my ability to distill it all the way down. And it had to do with this concept of periodization where you break an industry down into a history of an industry down into eras, which seems academic, but it's actually incredibly important because there's too much stuff there that's unorganized. You have to have a way to organize it to understand how it works. So I saw where it was flawed. Then I went back to the beginning, started all over again, then figured out how to fix it. And then once I figured out how to fix it, um, then it put me in a position where like, uh, uh, I've done enormous amount of research and very little writing, very little sharing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, there was, I, I mean, I, I mean, I read from 1790 to 2020 contemporary materials all the way through in the course of like three months, and I did it twice back to back. And so you're sitting on all of this knowledge, and I, you know, you feel a duty to like to share it, and it is valuable, valuable knowledge. I mean, it, these are insights that like our people, other people just don't have because they don't, they have jobs, they have responsibilities, like. I, I'm just kind of a clown who had all this time, you know, 
And so I'm, I'm going to use it and you'll see, I mean, you've started reading some of it, Jack, like mm -hmm. you, the quality of the content is very high and like it's yes. original stuff. This is not stuff that you will read anywhere else about banking. Um, and so I, it's, it's the vehicle that I'm going to use to share all of that, all that stuff. And it's max build on banks at Substack. Yeah, it's, it's original content. I, I've really enjoyed reading the work filled with banking history. Uh, one, one of the final questions for you, John, is take us to the savings and loans crisis. Volcker jacked up interest rates way more than Powell has and, and probably ever will, probably. Um, like, that was very bad for, for banks. But how bad was it for the economy? I think there was a, con a recession in 1980 and then one in 81. But I don't think of the sort of cascade of, of failures of banks as the later 80s and even in the 90s. I mean, how is it possible that banks were failing in the 90s because of interest rate hikes that happened in 1981? So there's a series of events. So it's, it's, it starts with the interest rates. So the interest rates jack up. You have a mismatch crisis. So where the, 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 the thrifts, it's primarily thrifts who are getting hit right there because thrifts can't have variable rate mortgages or variable, variable rate loans. Commercial banks could. And so like the thrifts got hit, right? So then what happens? Then there's deregulation. And so they deregulate the liability side of the balance sheet. So what they tell, because thrifts- Is that also, regulation Q? Yeah, they got rid of regulation Q because regulation Q said, you can only charge this much for your deposit or you can only pay this much for deposits. They lifted that ceiling. So then, then the thrifts, were pay then they had to pay huge amounts to borrow money to service their portfolios that were earning half as much. So then what did they do? Then the policymakers are like, oh, well, we need to deregulate the asset side of, life of the balance sheet too and let them go out and basically buy whatever they want on the asset side so they can earn higher yields to, to, so they can pay for that money that they're borrowing, right? So they deregulate that. So what do they do? They go into commercial real estate. Okay, so now you have the surge of money into commercial real estate. You also had a tax law change early in that decade where it, it, it promoted more money coming in, into real estate. And you also have the energy crisis, right? So then you start taking the, these, ba these banks start taking and companies start taking losses on energy. So they need to make those up. So then that money goes into commercial real estate. So then you have all this money is flooded into commercial real estate. And the second half of that decade is a commercial real estate crisis and into 91 and 92. That is a huge commercial real estate crisis. Like you go down to Dallas. I don't know if you've been to Dallas, but like you look at the skyline, all those buildings were built in the eighties. <laughs> it's like they all were. And like, you see that Oklahoma city and like over and over and over again. And so like um, that you had two, you had these fall on crisis. And then in the middle of this crisis, in the middle of those two, you had the LDC crisis, the less developed loan crisis. Emerging markets. The emerging markets, yeah. Mexico, Brazil, Argentina. And what you had there was, these, so you had all that money, right? That was sitting in the coffers, Saudi Arabia and stuff like that needed to go somewhere. So some of it went to mortgage-backed securities, right? For the subprime. But some of it went to like, it was then brought and made into government loans, right? And so then you have, but then you have the interest rates go up on those government loans. And what happens then? The government start defaulting. So Mexico was the first to go and it defaulted, I think it was August 82. And they basically came up and said, we're not going to pay we're not going to bear debt. And so those loans had gone through American banks. And so all of those loans had to be basically in your head, just written down to zero. So there was a, for years in the 1980s, every single one of the biggest banks in this country were underwater. They were all insolvent for all intents and purposes. And so that brings up a, a, actually an even bigger point is that like, if 
if there's something to be pissed about in banking, okay, if if you want to be pissed about bank something in banking, what you should be pissed about is the fact that we let these little banks fail all the time. And yet we let these big banks get away with this stuff, stupid stuff, harmful stuff to the economy. And when they get in trouble, we bail them out. And like, we should bail them out, okay? But then we need to do something on the little bank side too. Like, you, you, there can't be that disparate treatment. Um, and I think it all reduces to compensation. I think it, I think it all, if you go through the full analysis of banking, like what makes an exceptional bank, what leads to st stupid excesses at the bad banks, I think you can draw it all down to compensation. Jamie Dimon is pretty highly paid. Banks very well run. That's so, but that's maybe an exception. Yeah, I mean, Jamie Dimon is a savant. Yeah. Brian Moynihan, he should be, he, he deserves to be highly paid. Okay. Those guys do exceptional. But the problem is that you go throughout these regional banks throughout the country. And so keep in mind a couple of things. Remember, so the general rule is failure, not success. Number one. Number two, even the banks that don't fail, it's a minority of them that earn their cost of capital. What do you mean by that? And also, how do you square that with your prior comment that banks, it's always going to go back to normal, but banks, NIMS will be restored. How can both of those things be true? So the cost of capital is, okay, so. And so NIMS is net interest monitor. Sorry, go ahead. Right. So, you, so, so you're a capital provider. You have $100 million that you have to allocate, right? Where, where are you going to allocate it? You're going to allocate it on a risk-adjusted basis to the, to the place that gives you a decent, a respectable return. Right. That's basically your cost of capital, like the amount that allows you to be competitive with to, to, to attract capital. Right. As a bank. Right. So you got to earn, you know, whatever it is. I think the, the general rule is a bank needs to earn around 12 percent to earn its cost of capital. That's the general rule, although like each and each bank is slightly unique. But that's that's the, that's the general rule. 12 percent on its assets or 12 percent on its equity, equity or. Yeah. Return on equity. So that would be one point two percent on its assets. Okay. Assuming the typical bank is leveraged by 10. Yeah. Um, and so that that's that's what your cost of capital is. And John, it sounds like a really bad fact that you just said that so many banks, you said all, all the banks were marked to market insolvent, but that actually can perhaps allay some fears right now that just because on some bank balance sheets and you know perhaps a lot, a lot of bank balance sheets, the unrealized losses of securities marked to market uh, uh, insolvent, that doesn't mean that people are going to pull their money. And that doesn't mean that they should. Uh, and if they're, if they're insured, they definitely should not pull their money. Um, Oh, you talked about community banks, and uh, I, I was going to ask you about. Wasn't uh, Secretary Yellen before uh, Congress asked by a some some uh, senator from the middle of the country who said, "My community banks are struggling. Are you going to bail out them?" And she basically said no, but then she hinted maybe it's yes, maybe it's no. And so this is the question of: Will the help extended by the FDIC and the Treasury to Silicon Valley bank depositors, uninsured depositors over a quarter of a million dollars and signature bank, will that be extended to other banks if they fail? Your point about the 80s and all those banks being insolvent, sitting insolvent, like I, I never connected that in my head, Jack. And like, I'm like, when you're saying that, I'm like, oh my God, it's like, that's such a good point. Like the forbearance was the way to deal with that. There's appropriate way to deal with that. Otherwise you go into like the dark ages. What is forbearance? <laughs> yeah. Forbearance is when uh, a bank or so let's say you are delinquent on your loan as opposed to the banks coming in and just foreclosing on you they'll, they'll give you some time try to work it out with you you know like make it possible to like maybe you won't have to foreclose you know what i mean oh that, that's right. what forbearance is but on securities where there's no credit risk and it's all interest rate risk forbearance wouldn't help well it would be forbearance on the part of the, the society forbearance on the part of regulators because okay. yeah. that's in the 80s it was forbearance on the part of regulators they're like uh -huh. well i mean theoretically y'all are 
you know, insolvent, but like, we're not going to, we're not going to come in and seize all of you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so it, it, it's kind of forbearance in, 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 in the broadest uh, possible sense. But the other point about the, let me, let me so remember the eighties were a total shit show. Okay. For in banking. All right. And the big ones in particular, they were all insolvent or like the, all the ones in Texas is in Texas failed. All the big ones did or, or were merged in lieu of failure. Okay. You go back and you look in the 1980s, you look at the highest, and I'm an uber capitalist. Let me be very clear about this. I'm not against people getting rich, but you, you got to get rich the right way. That's the thing. You go back to the 80s and you look at, you get the list of the highest paid bankers every year. And I swear to God, every single one of their banks either failed or was insolvent for a significant period during that decade. And you say like, what are we compensating here? What are we compensating? Like, what is this all about? So then let's take it up to more modern times. You look at, the, you take every single publicly traded bank in America, okay? And you rank it by all-time total shareholder return. The amount of value this thing has created since it went public. You just put on a chart. And you, there you, what you'll see is that there are two that are way out, way above all the rest. There's like two that are like up here and all the, the others, even the, the second or the third, fourth, fifth, they're down here. What are those two? Glacier Bank Corp up in Kalispell, Montana, and Imity Bank up in Buffalo, New York. And uh, then you say, well, God, like those guys must have made a ton of money. You know what I mean? Whoa. The CEOs. The CEOs must have made a ton of money. And they did. They did. But you you look on a year-to-year basis, Mick Blodnick, the guy who's responsible for that performance at Glacier, he earned the you take the, you look at his peer group, he was the lowest paid in his peer group. Not just the lowest paid, all right. He earned a third of as much as the second lowest paid, a third. This guy was making like $260,000 a year. There were other clowns in his peer group that were making like $4 million. Mm -hmm. And Mick blew them away. I mean, mean, these guys weren't even in the same universe as Mick in terms of the performance and how rich his shareholders got. Um, And it was the same thing with Bob Wilmers. You look at his lowest paid in his peer group. And you think like, is there something to this? Is there something to this? And um, I think there is, and this is what it is. Banking is not rocket science, okay? It is, it, it is it's not complicated. It's not, you know, like you don't have to be a genius to do it, um, but you cannot be too ambitious. You cannot be too ambitious. You cannot be going after all the money you can make as quickly as you can make it. Um, and so what does that, how does that translate into the corporate speak? It translates into corporate speak through the fiduciary duty against self-dealing. And what that requires you to do is you have to put yourself in the shoes of the principal. You're the agent, like in, in, in the shoes of your employer, not in your own shoes. They go before you do. They are more important than you are. They get the priority, right? And that's what all these CEOs want their people to do, but yet they won't do it themselves where it comes where it matters the most and it's it's in compensation. And so the, the best way to encapsulate this whole thing is that you think about it like this. In 1949, a guy by the name of A.P. Giannini died. He was the guy who in 1904 uh, founded a bank called Bank of Italy that eventually became Bank of America that mm-hmm. by 1949 was the biggest bank, not in America, it was the biggest bank in the world, okay? This guy built from zero over in less than 50 years to the biggest bank in the world, okay? When he died, his estate was worth $550,000. Okay. If you adjust that for inflation, that's about six and a half million dollars today or something like that. That's so a lot of money, but a, a fraction of what the big bank CEOs make in a year right now. He could have had Vanderbilt wealth. 
he could have had Rockefeller wealth. And he started a, a separate company that was also a huge, today is still Transamerica. Like, that was really? Another separate company that he that yeah. spun that thing off. I mean, like, the guy was amazing. And then you go, then you go to 1998, and a guy by the name of Dave Coulter becomes the CEO of Bank of America. This is when I was still in California. And he was CEO for two years, okay? Two years, that's it. He sells that bank to Humacall, a nation's bank out in, from Charlotte. He, so Coulter sells that bank to Humacall. Coulter takes a $100 million golden parachute. $100 million golden parachute. And the, it is almost they took like, the name, so it's now called Bank of America now. Yeah, so it gets a better name, right? The nation's yeah. bank. So it's like, yeah. So the, but the Bank of America we think of, thinks to, that's not Bank of America. That's nation's bank. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, that's what that is. But it's like, so Dave Coulter, he he monetized AP Giannini's life work. When AP Giannini wanted to do the right thing and not monetize it. And so you think like two two things. Like first, like that's just wrong. You know what I mean? That's just wrong. It's just, it's unethical in my opinion. Um, but the second is that like, you have all these people who think like, who look back on history and they, they like degrade history and like, oh, these people were back in the day were all just like bad, like money grubbers and stuff like that. Like, that's not true. Like to a certain extent, this commitment to fiduciary duty in the banking industry, at least, and I think it's this case throughout corporate America has eroded. It's, it's, it's eroded. And, and there was a time when the, our executives took it much more seriously. Yes, I, I think that's particularly vivid in in 2008 when you had people being, you know, having bonus package after a very, very bad, bad uh, risk management. John, I, I sorry, I got two more final questions, which is, do you think there is a learning for banks from this uh, panic? Is it don't take too much interest rates? Don't uh, assume that certain deposits have a liabilities, uh, excuse me, have a duration that's longer than they are? Is, is that a learning? Um, and by learning, I don't just mean, oh, in retrospect, it's true, but it's going forward, we should keep this in our minds when we do risk risk management. Or is there is there no learning because banks fail all the time and this is just part of nature? Always a learning. There's always a learning, right? And I, I would be more general about the learning in this case. And I would say that like, if you fail, you could like, it may not be fair that you fail, right? Like, there could be rumors and gossips. There's a study done of all these banks that failed in the twenties and they just like looked at why they failed. And like 50% of them failed because of just like idle gossip rumors. Okay. Like you can fail for unfair reasons, but if you fail, it's on you. It's on you. Like you are a highly leveraged institution. You use fractional reserve banking. Like you have got to be prepared for everything. It is your duty to protect that money. And so like you, like all of these things you got to be prepared for, you know what I mean? Like, and what does that mean? The biggest risk is the risk you don't know, right? So there's, there's that's somewhat of a possibility, but like the biggest thing is that like you you got to go out on the on the on the on the on the extreme of the spectrum and say what is the least fair way we could fail? Like every they start all these horrible things, and none of which are true, and like people believe it. Like how do we survive that? And so that's that's what I, that's what I would think. You know, if I was running a bank, like I, that's that's where my head would be. I'd think like we need to make sure that doesn't happen to us. Right, and it's kind of funny, ironic, sad that the one uh, sector of the S and P five hundred, everyone gets hurt by raising rates, cost of capital, blah blah blah. But the one sector that benefits is banks, and then, then you have this whole thing. So it's pretty funny. Final question for you, John, is a lot of people out there are quite pessimistic. They say this bank crisis is not over. You know, Domino One was Silicon Valley Bank. Domino Two was Signature Bank. 
what's next. Who knows? You are, sounds like much more optimistic. You said the banking crisis probably already over. There could be failures, but this won't be systemic. You, you gave us many reasons about this interview, but just to summarize, this is the final question, I promise. Summarize, what is sort of the main reason, if you had to pick one, about why you think you know, everything's going to be all right? I mean, it's because when you study this stuff and you see it over and over and over and over and over, it's like baking a pie. Like my mom can look at that and she's like, the pie's done or the pie's not done. I'll look in there and be like, I, I have no idea if that pie's done. I just, is the oven on? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, like, like the pie is done, in my opinion. I could be wrong, but the pie seems to be done. Um, I mean, in March, in April 2009, not April 2023, what would you have said, like, is the pie done? Like, why would you say the pie would not have been done then? Because the pie was not done. Yeah, the pie was not done. So, what was the risk that led to the pie not being done in terms of it failing that you don't see now? Because because there are things. Oh, the unrealized losses, commercial real estate, which you know some of which is is you know, speculation. Um, uh, whereas in two thousand nine, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that there were lots of issues that led to the the problems continuing. Here, here's why: there's just too much money out there. There's just too much money out there. Still. So 2009 was the end of that liquidity cycle. It was the, it was like the final, then you had the European debt crisis. That was the final hurrah, right? That was the final hurrah. We were like, 2009, we were there. We were there. Like there wasn't that much liquidity. So it, like things, but we are sitting under this giant mountain of money still. And like, it's looking for places to go, you know? And so like, I, I think that, I think that that's, that's what, that doesn't mean there won't be failures. It doesn't mean there'll yeah. be a little recession. Those that's normal stuff. That's normal stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I would be shocked as somebody like I study this stuff probably more than anybody in this country. Like I would be shocked. And maybe that's famous last words also. You know, and this is the other thing you learn. You know what I mean? Uh, I would be shocked if, 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 if this wasn't good, if, if we weren't through the cute, the cute, the, the cute period. You'd be shocked if another big one, let's say top 10 bank fails that you would be shocked. Oh, yeah, I would. If you're a top 10 bank? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I would. Because Silicon Valley yeah. Bank was, I think, number 16, number 18, biggest bank. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I would be shocked if a, if a top 10 bank, yeah, I, that would be like, my brain didn't even go there. I mean, like, yeah. although Citigroup, I mean, I feel like it's always on the like verge of failure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, John, it's been a pleasure uh, getting to hear your your insights, which which are vast. People can check out your work on Twitter at Maxfield on Banks, and your, your Substack is Maxfield at Banks. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for being generous with your time, and thank you everyone for watching. I just want to say, Jack, real quick before you turn it off, you do an excellent job. You do. Thanks, an John. I appreciate that. I appreciate what you do very much. Well, you do an excellent job. Hey, John. Final question: How many of those books in, in the room behind you that we can see are are about finance and banking specifically? No, those are all. That's my finance and banking library. <laughs> so 100%. All right. There we all go. Take, thanks for job. See you, Jack. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.